message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Good morning. Right. Um, last week, you will be aware, uh, Graham started a new teaching series. I even saw something on the overhead about it a few seconds ago. Uh, I'm going to start this morning by reading from Bert's wonderful news. Um, If you have a copy of the message, this is probably among the minor prophets. (laughs) If not, don't bother. Uh, This is the story of a young man called Bert. It's one of my favourite children's stories, obviously, since I've kept it. Uh, to read to myself at night, the children have grown beyond it. And uh, he's going into town with his dad. And on the way to town, they looked in the windows of many shops. One big shop had lovely low windows for looking through. There were four funny people in the window. Not one of them moved. Two of the funny people were completely bald. And one of them had no clothes on anywhere. No trousers, no skirt, no shoes, nothing. And they didn't blink their eyes even once. Daddy? Hmm? Are those dead people? Don't be silly, Bert. They're plastic dummies. The shop people dress them up to sell clothes. Then Bert spotted something even more interesting. He saw roundy round doors. Bert knew all about roundy round doors. They were his favourite doors. They didn't open, they just turned round and round in circles. You walked into them and kept on walking and you ended up on the pavement again. They turned you right round like magic. Bert let go of his daddy's hand and jumped into the doors with both feet. First he went right round once and ended up where he started and then he went halfway round and stepped into a shop. He found himself walking down the lanes of one of those big stores that seemed to sell everything that anybody might need. Bert counted six lawnmowers like his daddy's and twelve garden spades before there was a sudden change and he was surrounded by high shelves full of TVs and videos. At the bottom of the moving stairs where they sold nice smells like Liz sometimes wore, Bert remembered he wasn't supposed to be on his own. His daddy was supposed to be with him. But where were the roundy round doors? Were they in front of him or behind? He didn't know. Bert turned round and round in useless circles, for he could see no further than a wall of toothbrushes and shampoos. People passed him by, but they didn't know him. They didn't know that he was Bert. I am lost, he thought. Nobody knows where I am. Once their teacher had read them a story about a girl who got lost in an airport, and now Bert felt that scary feeling too. He stared around him through big wobbly tears and sucked his top lip in despair. How long did it last? How long could you be lost for? Would his daddy go home without him? Bert! Bert, 
green, stay where you are. A loud voice shouted his name from a long way off. His daddy loomed up in front of him and grabbed him by the arm. I have been looking everywhere for you. How dare you disappear like that? You'll have me round the bend one of these days, you absolute noodlehead. Bert sniffed loudly. For once, he was happy to be called a noodlehead. His daddy hadn't finished talking. Look at you standing there with tears dripping down you. Well, it's your own stupid fault for running through those doors like a rabbit down a hole. And then he gathered him up and gave him a great big squasher of a hug. It felt wonderful not to be lost anymore. Ah, have you ever had that kind of experience? Anybody, come on. If you've ever been lost and separated from your parents... Oh, good, there's some opportunity to embarrass present parents. There was a hand up over in the Mason family. (laughs) Come on, come on. Where did you get lost? Everywhere. (laughs) Are we working? Go on. Wherever we go, I'm bound to get lost. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been lost for long? Um, I don't know. She tends to run away herself. She doesn't actually get lost, she just runs away. She knows exactly where she is. Uh, I saw some. Have you lost children? Who's lost children? Well, tell us about your lost children. Um, we're we're at the working. beach. At the beach. And she was playing with the other children. Okay, playing on the beach. Half an hour. Lost at the seaside near the water. <gasps> How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you lose a child? I mean. I've lost, you know, I've kind of lost them. Westfield, you know. But the thing is, they know where to find me in Westfield. <laughs> Costa, cinnamon latte. I'll wait there all day. I don't mind. Bookshop. Thanks, Mel. Getting prompting from the front. But, you know, it's, kind of, it's one thing to lose a child for like half an hour or something like that, isn't it? You know, kind of not quite uh, have a handle where they are. That, that might be, but, you know, I can't imagine Mel and I going on a city break for a weekend, you know, Edinburgh, catch a show on a coach, and then on the trip back, getting somewhere this side of Carlisle and thinking, hold on, there's only two of them. And, you know, my children are precious. Uh, they're, they're very important. They're very precious. Uh, they're probably the most precious children in this room. But... But they are not God incarnate. At least I really hope they're not, because I'm in trouble on Judgment Day if they are. So how does this happen in Luke chapter 2? His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple 
sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Jesus, you absolute noodlehead. It doesn't say that. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. And we do need to realise that Luke is writing an historical account. That's probably not everything that was said in the course of that conversation. I imagine Joseph had something to say. Probably best not recorded. But we've got a nice little summary of a really weird experience. And they were in great distress, Mary and Joseph. You can understand that. Jesus' brothers and sisters were probably a bit upset in the way that, you know, brothers and sisters do get upset when something happens to one of their siblings. Three days looking for him. He hadn't texted them. He hasn't put a Facebook status update with his location on it so that they can find him. But Jesus doesn't seem to be vaguely concerned. He's not worried about his safety. He's not like Bert after half an hour. Bert's after like two minutes, but Bert's a bit younger than 12. You know, he's not there in tears panicking about what's going to happen. Jesus is completely serene and secure. And I I think he's 12 years old, but there's a lot we can learn from him. So here are some of the things, three things, because... I'm quite traditionalist, believe it or not. Three things that I think we can learn from Jesus. The first is that Jesus derives his complete sense of identity from his relationship with his father. That seems to be, for me, what sums up his response. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He absolutely knows about his relationship with God the Father. Now, of course, Jesus does have a totally unique relationship with God the Father because Jesus himself is God. They have coexisted, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all eternity past and will do for all eternity present. Jesus didn't come into existence when Mary gave birth to him. He was there in the beginning. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Everything that's created was created by him and for him and through him. He's the firstborn among all creation. He has always existed with the Father. And his relationship with his Father absolutely secures his life. Now, we don't have that same relationship. At least, I'm not claiming to be God. You can make your own judgment on that for you. We don't have that relationship, but we do have a father-child relationship with God. John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that everyone who receives Jesus 
has been given the right to become children of God. When Paul uh, is writing to the, the Romans and the Galatians, he takes a picture of adoption that we have to take quite seriously. I'll give you an example. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And we have to get our heads around that a little bit, because we have a very different picture of adoption from what Paul had. See, for us in 21st century Britain, adoption is primarily about couples who can't have children, who want to bring a very young child into their family and raise them as their own. I have an adopted sister. My parents couldn't have children, so they adopted a girl who was under six months old, and she legally became theirs, and she grew up, and like some adoptions, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Because when we adopt, we don't know what that very young child is going to grow up to be like. That's not the Roman picture of adoption that Paul is referring to at all. The Romans, if you were a Roman uh, man and you were the head of your family and perhaps you'd built yourself quite a good reputation and quite a bit of wealth, you might look around your children and think, what a waste of space they all are. I'm not letting them run the family business into the ground. I'm not letting them ruin my reputation. I want someone to inherit from me who is worthy of inheriting from me. And they would look around, maybe amongst their slaves, and they would see a slave who's worked in their house for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, and they think, that person has the character necessary to inherit from me. And they would adopt them. So they might adopt a slave as their son, over and above their own children, to secure their inheritance. Real political point as well in Paul's day, because it was very common among Roman emperors. This is a fantastic book, Adopted into God's Family. I just want to read you a little bit of it. Adoption was a means by which succession to power was brought about. From the late 1st century to the middle of the 2nd century and later, successive Roman emperors adopted men not related to them by blood with the intention that an adoptee should succeed the emperor in principle. Adoption became crucial to the continuation of the line of Julio-Claudian emperors. So, Julius Caesar adopts Octavian, who issued the decree at the time of Jesus' birth that the Roman world should be registered, as his son in 44 BC. Octavian in turn adopted a son named Tiberius, who adopted Gaius Caligula. Gaius, Gaius's uncle, sorry, Claudius, subsequently adopted Nero, who so devastatingly interrogated and persecuted the Christians. See, right at the top of the Roman Empire, there is this principle that you adopt someone you consider to be worthy of inheriting from you. That is the kind of adoption that we have received from God. God looked at you and loved you and saw your potential 
in Jesus and decided you were worthy of inheritance. That is amazing. That is an amazing and wonderful picture of what it is to be a child of God. A child of the king, the great emperor, the majestic ruler of heaven. John read from Ephesians about his inheritance in the saints. He looks at you and assesses you worthy of receiving his inheritance. We have become co-heirs with Christ. How fantastic is that? And that is where our identity comes from. Now, it's easy to look in all kinds of other places. And we might think we're pretty good at not drawing our identity from, from other things in life. But we can easily get trapped. I mean, look at me. <laughs> you are. How embarrassing. White, British male, approaching middle age, slightly overweight, showing my wisdom more and more each time I cut my hair. Heterosexual, father, husband, ridiculously middle class. All those things can start to become labels for us. They can start to identify us. And, and, and we might think, actually, no, I don't let any of that stuff identify me. I know I'm a child of God. But the reality is they do. Think about the way that you label people when you meet them. I was sitting in the car park at the university yesterday waiting for the coach to arrive to take peace to Liverpool and parents are pulling up in their cars. I cannot help myself. I look at someone's car and I draw conclusions about them. I can't help myself. That's sad, I know. Sorry, I, one of my daughters is looking at me disbelievingly. I know nothing about cars, of course. <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about cars. It's not like I'm you know, a fan of Top Gear or anything like that. I took my car into the garage once because it's making a strange noise. And when I went back to collect it, he said, that strange noise your car's making. And I said, yeah. He said, there's no engine. There's no oil in the engine. No engine. He said, there's no... That's how much I know. There's no oil in the engine. Do you check your oil regularly, sir? I'm like, the light never came on. <laughs> I've never popped the bonnet. I was driving around the other week and my bottle washer light was on. It was on for about eight or nine days, and then one day it was off. Mel, have you filled my bottle washer up? Yeah. <laughs> but I make judgments, and I'm trained not to. I mean, I really am trained not to. I can sit down with people who look nothing like me, talk nothing like me, have life experiences nothing like mine, and I've learned to understand that the only label that they deserve is beloved of God. That's the only label they have. The only label that matters to us is child of God. I'm a child of God. I don't have to impress you. I don't have to be liked by you. I don't have to do well at my job. I'm not going to be judged by what I do for a living. I'm a child of God. That's the only label that matters. That's the only source of identity that I need. And when I really get that straight... Everyone else can be in a right panic and life can be falling apart and I stay secure. Yeah? Now, I'm not telling you that like I've got that sussed because I haven't got that sussed. 
but I know it's true. Jesus, in the middle of this huge panic, is identifying himself. I am the Son of God. My, my security is with my Father in heaven. We have been adopted as children of God. It's the only label that matters. Okay, so that's one thing we can learn from Jesus, I think. He's defined by his relationship with the Father. Here's another thing that I think we can learn from Jesus. He is teachable. Where do they find him? They find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. We kind of draw some pretty strange conclusions about Jesus, I think. It's easy to imagine that because in his nature he's divine, he was born with a complete and intimate understanding of the scriptures. But that's not true. Jesus was fully human. He had to learn the scriptures the same way we do. Jesus had to grow up in the nurture of the Lord and gain understanding and wisdom just like we do. He is Alec Matea, who writes the most amazing commentary on Isaiah I've ever read, describes Jesus as the disciple par excellence. He learnt from the Father. He would read the word, he would learn. He was open to those things. He sat here at 12 years old among teachers of the law and he's listening to them. And he's asking questions. And yeah, he knows some stuff. But he's teachable. That's in his, that's in his heart, that's in his spirit. Later in life he says, I am humble. He, he is about learning from the Father at this young age. Are we teachable people? And, and what does it look like to be teachable? Ray and I were kicking this around together yesterday on our way out to Liverpool. What does it look like to be teachable? What does it actually mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Being teachable is not about how much information you can accrue how much pure knowledge you can gain. That's not what it is to be teachable. doesn't matter how many sermons you've listened to, either here or downloaded, Mark Driscoll, Terry Virgo. Who else is... Is there anyone else downloadable? Oh, there must be loads of people. I don't... Graham Pyman. Yeah. Very important to download Graham's. We are recording this, aren't we? Yep, very important to download Graham's. <laughs> you can listen to as many sermons as you want to. You can read the Bible as often as you want to. But if you go home today and in your conversation you run somebody down, you don't know very much. Yeah? You can quote as much scripture as you like. You can pray as often as you want. You can have as many open conversations with people. But if you critique the worship group rather than bless God, you don't know very much. Being teachable is not about the information that you've gained. When you stand before Jesus in heaven, he is not going to ask you what you knew. He is going to ask you, what did you do? There's no exam paper 
in the Christian life. There's no point as a Christian in which God is going to sit down and put a GCSE paper in front of you and say, right, what's your score? You can listen and gain information and it can be no good to you whatsoever. When Jesus has finished the most consolidated amount of teaching that we have of of his in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the story of a wise and foolish builder and he just says this. The person who listens to my words and does nothing about it is like a foolish builder who built his house on sand. And when the storm came and the rains came and the waters rose, it was washed away. The wise person who listens to my words and puts them into practice is like the person who built their house upon the rock. Now, I'm not saying we're saved by what we do. We are not. We are saved by grace. You cannot earn your salvation and you cannot justify it after the event, but Jesus is more concerned with how you live than what you know. Does that make sense? So being teachable is not about absorbing information. It's about how you put it into practice. Wisdom is kind of like applied knowledge. Do you live it out? And how open are you to people speaking into your life to help you live it out? I think one of the things that we have greatly lost in the modern church, not Jubilee, but in the modern church, is discipleship. Because we've all got so busy... We meet together, we can come on Sundays, we can meet at life groups, we can be at prayer meetings, we can download information off the internet, but we've forgotten that discipleship is about sharing your life with someone so that you can learn from them, so that you can see them go through the rough times and apply the understanding that they have of who God is so that they can speak into your life when times are tough and they can shape you. And you receive it. One of, the, one of the struggles that I've had since Christmas, I've not been particularly well since Christmas, one of the things that I struggle with when I'm not well is my diary. Uh, I'm particularly poor when I'm not well at, at planning my diary. Okay, I just get caught up in what's immediate and urgent and I kind of forget what's important. And I become useless at planning ahead. So one of the things that I've done, I sat and had a conversation with a, with a friend this week. He said, what can I do for you? I said, you can help me plan my diary. So every, meet, every, every now and then, <laughs> regular intervals, we are meeting and he is looking at my diary and he's going to give me advice. Now, this is, this is a practical thing. It's very helpful. But it's also a discipleship thing. Because he is going to be saying to me, you need to put some time that week for Mel. You need to give some time that week to your children. Why haven't you booked a holiday yet? And it's not just a You know, I know that stuff. Do you know what I mean? I know that stuff. And when I'm well, I can do it well. But I need somebody who's prepared to say to me, you're not investing enough time in your marriage, Kevin. Let's put some in the diary for you. You're not investing enough time in your own recreation. Go and play golf with, with uh, Matt that week. Put it in your diary. Let's put it there. Because I need people to speak into my life so that I can learn from them and put it into practice. That's what it is to be teaching. Now, you know, that's an example. I'm not, I'm not your example. That's an example. Okay? 
But being teachable, it's not about what you know. It's not about what you can quote. It's about how you live. The, the, the evidence that Jesus is teachable is not how well he understood the scriptures, although that's telling. It's how well he lived his life, which was perfectly. Yeah? Okay. Third thing I think we can learn from Jesus. He goes home and he is submissive to his parents. Jesus learned to be submissive. Now, generally speaking, we don't like the whole concept of authority and submission because the way that we generally understand it is that it's about hierarchy. Authority is about how important you are. When I, when I started work, when I left school and started work, I went to work in local government. This is in the late 1980s. And at the time, uh, they might still do it, actually, they had what they called family trees. Does, does anybody in their work environment have family trees? Yeah, one or two. So you kind of know a little. Family trees are like this. The most important person in the organization, which in local government is the town clerk and chief executive, is at the top of the family tree. He's like our great ancestor. And then you get a little line down from him, and then you get a whole row of people who are the next most important people, who are like heads of departments, or they don't call them that anymore, do they? Champions of environmental change. <laughs> Things like that. And, that and, it, and it gradually worked down. And I, and I went to work in this office. I was a trainee building control officer. This is, this is how my, my, my section's family tree looked. We had a building control manager... He had his own office and the best car of anybody else. Then, then below him were two principal building control officers. And they each had senior building control officers. And they had building control officers or building control surveyors. Then there were assistant building control surveyors. And then there was me, the trainee building control surveyor. And you aspired to working your way up the ladder of promotion because it meant you got paid more, you got more holiday, uh, you, got, uh, you got a better car. What I didn't know when I first joined, and I, was a bit, I, I left school after A-levels. Um, don't think I could have coped with university, but I definitely wanted to get married when Mel left school the following year. So I left after A-levels. I was a bit wet behind the ears. I, when, I, when I joined this, this uh, section... I sat at the only spare desk in the office. They sat me at the only spare desk there was. What I didn't know was that before I joined, there had been three principal building control surveyors and three seniors, and they decided when a couple of people retired not to replace the posts, which hugely frustrated one of the senior building control surveyors because his next promotion had been taken away from him. And he came up to me in my first week at the council and he said, you are sitting at a desk that is way above your station in this organization. Because I'd been given the principal building control surveyor's desk, and that had a set of drawers on each side of the newspapers. <laughs> because authority is about importance and power and influence. And, and we have that in our heads. So we don't like submitting because we don't like the idea that, oh, that person has authority over me. You know, biblically, that's absolute rubbish. That is not the Bible's picture of authority at all. 
in the Bible, the father has authority over the son. And the son submits to the authority of the father. But the son is God. He's not less important than the father. He's not less powerful, less knowledgeable. He's not present in 95% of the universe as opposed to 100. He is God. And yet they function with authority and submission. So when Paul is writing that incredible kind of hymn or creed in Philippians 2, and he speaks about Jesus, he says about Jesus that though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that word grasped is used for his own ends. Jesus didn't use his deity for his own glory. Instead, he makes himself nothing. He takes on the nature of a servant. And he's found in human likeness. And he humbles himself and he becomes obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus learns submission. He submits to the Father. He doesn't use his deity. He doesn't use the fact that he's God for his own ends. But he submits to the Father and he serves him even to death on a cross. And because Jesus learns submission, the Father exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that is above every name. John mentioned that this morning. That every knee shall bow and every tongue in heaven and earth and under the earth shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Greek word there, Lord, is kyrios. It's the way the Greeks translated Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That's what Paul is writing in Philippians 2. So he is God. He humbles himself. He submits. He goes to the cross. God exalts him. That's the biblical picture of submission. It's not about using your power over people or or having to quake at the knees and bow and say, yeah, whatever you say. It's about role and function. That's how God works. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. There is authority and submission in the Godhead. That's how marriage should work. That's how church works at its best. The authority is not about power and structure. It's about how we function as we serve God. Where do you first learn about authority. Where do you first learn how to submit to those in authority over you? In the home. The first place you learn it is as a child growing up in the nurture of the Lord, recognizing and submitting to the authority of your parents. Isn't it incredible that when, when God talks to Moses and says, here are the ten most important things you need to know to live well, one of them is... Honor your mother and father. And the pattern of Jesus is this. If you learn submission, God will give you authority. But if you never learn how to submit, God won't trust you with a great deal of authority. And we don't grab authority because we want it for our own ends. We, we want authority because God has got an important work and we need to carry authority with us to see the gospel of Jesus taken out to the nations. That's what it's for. It's to serve. You learn it in the home. That's where you learn it. That's why, sadly, it's one of the reasons why it's such a difficult thing, subject, in our society because the authority of the home has so often broken down. 
Where do you first learn to exercise authority? Well, for many of us, the hardest lessons are bringing up children and exercising your authority well as parents. So if you want to know how does someone handle authority, if we, if we want to recognize that someone has authority in the church, if we want to think, right, John, you're an elder. What did we think about when you became an elder? One of the things we look at is how does he exercise authority in his home? What's his relationship like with his wife and with his children? Because if he can't exercise authority there, why would we give him authority here? And actually, God is as pragmatic as that. If you don't exercise the authority that you have well, and you don't submit to authority, why would he give you more? Well, I'll tell you, he doesn't. People might grab it, but he doesn't. Jesus learns submission. Now, submission, it's easy to submit when the person in authority is right in your view. But actually, that's not really submission. That's agreement. Yeah? It's, it's easy, isn't it, to speak well of your manager at work when they're making great decisions or to speak well of the elders when you totally agree with everything they're going for. That's not really submission. That's agreement. Submission is about how you react when you don't agree with what they're doing or the decisions they're making or the things they're saying. That's, that's a real test of submission. And authority, the real test of authority, is when someone doesn't agree with what you're trying to do. How do you handle that? Because if you start laying down the law, the chances are you're back in that mode. You learn that as a parent. I mean, I probably, you probably learn it in all kinds of walks of life, but you definitely learn it as a parent. If you start trying to lay down the law, because I say so, you're back in that mode. It's not biblical. It doesn't work. And it doesn't bless your children. And if you like that as a manager, it doesn't work. You might get compliance, but it doesn't really work because that's not how God models it. So, Jesus, how am I doing? <gasps> depends, depends how accurate my watch is. Jesus derives his sole sense of identity from his relationship with the Father. Is that where your sense of identity comes from? Do you really understand what it is to be an adopted child of God? Is that where your security comes from? Is that where your peace comes from? When, when the world is raging around you, is that what you know for certain? He is teachable. That doesn't mean that he's really intelligent. It means that his heart says, I will learn from you and I will put into practice what I learn. Are you teachable? It's no good just ticking. Yeah, I'm, I'm an orthodox uh, uh, Christian. Good grief. Words are disappearing out of my head uh, very rapid. What are we? We're reformed, aren't we? We're reformed. Yeah, I can tick all the boxes. I'm reformed. If you don't love your neighbor, if you don't remember the poor, if you're going to gossip behind people's back, you haven't learned very much. And he knew what it was to submit to the Father. And he knows what it is to exercise authority. I have a lot to learn from the 12-year-old Jesus. 
Okay, I'm going to end there. I'm not, uh, I don't particularly want to do an appeal today. Um, I'm going to end there. What I do want is, if any of those things have challenged you, and I know like fatherhood, big, big issue. If any of those things have challenged you, grab the person you came with, find a friend, talk to them, pray with them. Come to me if you're desperate. Uh, or email graham.pyman at... I'm going to pray, and then when I've prayed, there are refreshments outside. Father, thank you that you are our Father in heaven, and that you have chosen to adopt every one of us into your family. We are so blessed by our relationship with you. Father, help us to find all our security and identity in being children of God. Help us to be teachable. Lord, we want to live life the way you have called us to and not just tick some academic uh, box. And Father, help us to submit to the authority you place over us and to exercise the authority you have given us well because we know that you are about a wonderful work in this world and we want to see your kingdom come and we want to see your will be done. We want to serve you, Lord, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.